Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that pits two movies with lots in common in a fight to the death to see which one comes out victorious. This week in the red corner, we're heading back to 1941 and a movie that is often described as the greatest ever made. Well, that may be so, but it's never been on Clash of the Titles, so we'll be the judge of that, says the podcast that recently covered Tomb Raider and Uncharted. It's time for us to talk Citizen Kane. While in the blue corner, more ego-driven antics from a headstrong but flawed individual. But there's no hiding behind pseudonyms this time as the life of Howard Hughes gets the big screen treatment, courtesy of that immense cinematic double act of Scorsese and DiCaprio. We'll see if they stand a chance this week with The Aviator. Give me a mic. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater. Ladies and gentlemen, Howard Hughes. I care very much about aviation. Man on the planet. Oh, he saw the future. I'm not gonna believe this. Howard Hughes has bought TWA. Let's build a plane that flies above the weather. Across the country, across the world. If you do that, you could lose everything. Well, I won't. He lived the dream. Welcome to Hollywood. So it's a mogul mealy this week, but which film is better? Let's find out together. Welcome to Clash of the Titles. the Kraken. Hello, Clash Butters. Rosebud. I'm Citizen Zane. <laughs> Vicky Crompton. Chris Tilly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I took the I rest of the day off. I have never said that before. <laughs> yeah, because I haven't watched this for... Oh, we'll get into the histories of this movie, but this is only my second watch, otherwise I'd have definitely come up with that. Actually, tell a lie, I did have a total film column for um, a year, and that was called Citizen Zane. Was it? Mm. That's nice. Yeah, I was very proud of that. Yeah. Hey, welcome to part one of Citizen Kane versus The Aviator. If you're new to the show, this is how it works. We'll be doing Citizen Today and the aviator on thursday at which point we will declare which is the better film so the clue from last week's show was chris uh, mogul melee mogul melee <laughs> yeah i've got to learn to pronounce that right people have said on twitter i, I it comes from tabletop wargaming mm. as a kid and because i didn't know the word but it meant hand-to-hand combat i always say melee mm, i thought both were right so I? yeah no, I don't, i'm not saying they are it's just melee melee Me- i don't know which one melee. it's fine my second clue mm. Uh, you might like this, Vicky. It was, um, we're doing a recluse deuce. (laughs) (laughs) And I even put a third one up today, even though it was, it didn't need to be done, but I was just happy with it. Um, we were having a double dip in Tycoon Lagoon. (laughs) I love all 
them. <laughs> Alex actually snorted. Yeah. Yeah, Tycoon Lagoon is great. <laughs> it I was want just a holiday there. <laughs> <laughs> it was just too similar to Mogul Melee. It wasn't it wasn't an actual clue. Right. Yeah. Tycoon Lagoon. Welcome to Tycoon Lagoon. It's if you say like Richard Attenborough from Jurassic Park, it just adds some gravitas to it. Welcome to Tycoon Lagoon. <laughs> All right, uh, you didn't need another guess uh, clue, rather, Chris, because, yeah, a few people got it. Your guesses tried to control the narrative on our Twitter account, where we are at ClashPod, also on Instagram and TikTok, at ClashPod. And if you're in the business for a little extra Clash, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Clash of the Titles on YouTube, and help us grow the pod. So, guess-wise, congrats to Danny Baker, Carter Neal, who got it right, and a special mention to Tim Wilkins, who guessed Citizen Kane versus Anchorman, the legend of Ron Burgundy. <laughs> But that's a shame. That is a shame. <laughs> oh, it was sitting right there. Yeah, what a missed opportunity. How did we miss that? <laughs> How? So, uh, congratulations to our winner, long time listener. The man influencing the course of our Twitter account was Andrew Logan. Well done, Andrew. Your prize this week is Fowl of the Air, Fish of the Sea, and Beast of the Field. Two of each. If you could come and pick them up from the studio, because the smell of shit is overpowering. Right, connection section. What do you got? Uh, vague childhood trauma. Recluses. Uh, doing crazy things with money in the media that people who manage your money advise against. Yeah. Uh, telling your story through newsreels. Isn't, so I might have misheard it, but at some point, isn't Charles Kane, doesn't he's described as a shareholder in public transit, but he has no interest in that. Mm. So public transit. Cool, that's a good... Aeroplanes and whatever yeah, he wasn't a, interested yeah. in. Buses, sure. let's say buses. Do aeroplanes count as public transit? I don't it's know how it It's not public in terms of state-owned, although in some countries, of course, it is state-owned. Right. Uh, but it is transit on which the public ride. Do the fun ones, do the fun ones. <laughs> sure, OK, here's one. Being a controlling partner... Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, both these men lose their shit when their ladies leave them. Mm. Yes. Yeah, being violent with women <laughs> is another one. Yeah. Mm. Uh, projection rooms, that's a boring one. Uh, some sort of behind-the-scenes <laughs> ones, though. I wrote um, down projection rooms and crossed <laughs> it out. I was like, Chris will have a go at me if I say that. <laughs> yeah. Don't do all of them. Don't do all of them. Uh, sort of behind-the-scenes one. The, the screenwriter of The Aviator, John Logan, wrote RKO291. Uh, a really, really good movie about the making of Citizen Kane. Right. Um, Orson Welles uh, considered doing a film about Howard Hughes instead of this, but thought a, a version of Howard Hughes, but thought people wouldn't believe Howard Hughes' life. Yeah. He needed a more believable character. Uh, men who love only themselves and maybe their mother. Okay, I think we're done now. Right, okay. Um, oh, no, I, I'm going to end with this one. Great. Kane's. Citizen Kane in one of them, yeah. and Howard Hughes needs a cane in The Aviator. Fantastic way to end that section. <laughs> Probably the best way we've ever ended one. That is a good button on that scene. <laughs> Love it. Love it. All right, then. On Thursday, Chris is flying high in The Aviator, which means today, Citizen Zane, referring to myself in the third person, always a good idea, takes on Citizen Kane. Let me take you on a journey. It's time for news on the march. Charles Foster Gain built a private mountain in Florida to create Xanadu. Enough artefacts for ten museums. The loot of the world. Two of each animal. Fowl of the air. Fish of the sea. Beast of the field. The costliest monument a man has built to himself. He's America's Kubler Khan. He came into wealth from owning the world's third richest gold mine. To some, he's a communist. To others, a fascist. He says, I've only been one thing. An American spoke for millions of Americans, hated by as many more. He swung elections, twice married, twice divorced. His first wife died with their son in a motor accident. Married Susan Alexander, a town hall singer, then built her an opera house to sing in. Now recluse in his decaying pleasure palace, still attempting to sway a nation that no longer trusts him. 
That was news on the march. It's also the entire plot and the first ten minutes <laughs> of Citizen Kane. Ladies and gentlemen, Citizen Kane. A little clap for you there, one take wonder. Ooh. I didn't think you were going to get through that. No, neither That's did hard. I. That's yeah. hard. Have was, you practised? That was the fifth time we've done that. <laughs> Be honest, Vicky. Vic, Nicky's had to do a lot of <laughs> snipping here. Fifth. You're being generous. We've been here for two and a half hours. <laughs> need to get this right. Yeah, so let's do our individual histories with this behemoth of cinema, Chris. I think I probably first watched this on the telly when I was about 10 and I liked it then, bought it on video and I've... <laughs> I reckon I liked it at 10. That is so you. I, I think that's the, the most, Chris, no, it's yeah, so the most Chris sentence it, ever. But it, I liked Citizen Kane when I was 10. <laughs> but And I've watched it maybe 10 times since. Like, I don't know. It feels... Wow. It's like it's a film that hasn't aged. It's properly exciting. It's I don't know. It's got a reputation for being boring and I don't know where that comes from. I just think it's really good. I suggested doing this at Christmas with It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and I think that would have worked. Like those are the two black and white films I watched at that age, and then have continued to watch because they're both sort of investigations into one person's existence, and they're about what a life means and and what a life is worth. It's a Wonderful Life is obviously the more positive, optimistic version of that. But yeah, and the last time I watched it was two years ago when I was pitching a video essay about this movie to the BBC. Um, what did they say? It was unsuccessful my right. pitch. Okay, but it meant I had a shit ton of notes, which is handy this week. Oh, good, because I did this for the first time, and boy, oh boy. Uh, v, what's your history with Citizen Kane? Do you think you might be able to guess? First watch? No. Mark Parsons' shelf. Granddad, I don't know. There's <laughs> only three things. What do I always say? Oh, I've never seen this. I remember seeing this on the Mark Parsons' VHS shelf. Yeah, so it was a sexy double bill for us mm. on a night in with the third man, and so as a consequence... <laughs> I bet I... he got it that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he likes to have sex with a sleep people. People. <laughs> Smoke this reefer. Watch these films. Jesus Christ. Um, ah, they're not stoner movies. They're not stoner no. movies. No. What, God. It, what, what it meant was, <laughs> I thought there was a Ferris wheel in this film. So I think what's happened is I've blended <laughs> Citizen Kane and The Third Man. Right. So for sake of argument, let's call it a first watch, shall we? Doubtless oh. there's a Ferris wheel uh, on the property Inside of Xanadu. Right. Yeah. For, sure. for sure. Uh, well, considering this is a movie about nostalgia and what might have been been. It's one of these occasions where I remember exactly where I was when I saw this, and I was sitting in the room of the famous. Remember the one that got away, the one who we bonded over. When oh we my met? gosh, yeah! Wowzers, McTrousers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I was. So she was after some as well. I was going to say <laughs> more sexy time. That <laughs> so we've got that in common too. So cute for us. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she was. I think she was trying to distract <laughs> Get me. <rid> of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I was like, uh, no, don't want to watch this. Imagine my surprise when you liked it. When two hours later, I was like gobsmacked by what I'd seen. It's yeah. a blast. It's it's amazing, and it's. It's because it's so modern, like, and we'll we'll talk about that. But I thought I was going to watch a black and white movie, yeah, yeah. and I watched a movie in black and white that yeah. had all the trappings of any movie that might have been released in what year did I watch it? Nineteen ninety nine. On okay. Where is she now? Well, you've just given away some identifying characteristics. So we, we might need to bleep that out. <laughs> no, 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 I'm looking for her. I'm looking for her. Is, anyone can help. This is a <laughs> cry for help. This is a cry for help. Uh, hit me up on Alex Twitter. underscore Zane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't use the Clash One account. Uh, uh, don't, don't public message. DM me. I'm going to put my DMs open. So just slide on in there. Where, where is she? Where, no, not angry. Ha, ha, ha. Where is but she? But seriously, where is she? But, uh, honestly, find her. Right there. So, 
Would you like to know a bit about this fucking movie? <laughs> a little bit, sure. Uh, here we go. I'm going to credit two sources largely for this research. A brilliant New Yorker article and the Oscar-nominated PBS documentary The Battle for Citizen Kane, which is captivating and available to watch on YouTube should you want to go on a deep dive, or rather a deeper dive, after this show. So Hollywood had been after Orson Welles for years, but he was too in love with his baby the theatre, specifically New York's Mercury Theatre, to head out to California despite huge sums of money being offered. Then, three things happened. He ran out of money for his <laughs> beloved plays. War of the Worlds, which we talk about at length, so I'm not going to go into it here on our War of the Worlds episode. That infamous broadcast happened, which raised his status even more in Hollywood and based on the global awareness that the War of the Worlds radio broadcast delivered, he was offered an unheard of, never before issued deal in Hollywood by RKO Pictures head George Schaefer. He basically, considering he never made a film, he was given final cut, complete creative control, allowed to cast who he wanted it. And in the Hollywood press, they tore chunks out of him and RKO because this deal was just so unheard of well, how in the old industry. was he 27 26 no, I, think he was 24. I think he was 24 when they made him the offer oh my god yeah. <laughs> it used to be something that would always go around like when we were much younger and you knew somebody wanted to be like make films and it's like it's okay because Orson Welles made this when he was 26 so it's okay we've got time like when we were much younger <laughs> yeah Oh, God, don't. I know, do you remember that? Don't. I mean, this movie This movie is all about that subject. Like, oh, the path's not taken. Yeah. Find her. Find yeah, her. He was, 26 when he, was, <laughs> he was 26 when he came out. He was, and I've never said this before, a wunderkind. Uh, a wunderkind does have the gift of theatrical timing. Oh, mm. nice. Yeah, yeah. it's nice. How did you feel when you said it? No, <laughs> never again. You just, you paused. That's the trouble. If you're going to do something like that. Wasn't sure how to pronounce it. Yeah, no doubts. Do is it a V or a W at the beginning? So, this contract is basically the beginning of the downfall of Orson Wells. We'll come to exactly why, but I'm sure many of you who know the history of this movie will know why. So he tries to get a few projects off the ground. One sounds like a mad first-person camera shot with the camera as the person, which uh, Robert Montgomery did years later with Lady in the Lake, which I only know because I'm reading the Christopher Nolan Variations biography. Uh, it was a flawed but interesting movie, so kind of glad that didn't happen. Then, Did you and Nolan have a chat about that recently? Oh, we, we did, actually. That's ah, funny you should mention that, Chris. Lovely. I don't know whether I said it on the show, but I was in Los Angeles, uh, which is how it's actually pronounced if you're a Los Angolian. And, um, yeah, I sat down with uh, Chris Nolan to talk about uh, Oppenheimer, which is, again, how you pronounce that. So, uh, there you go. Uh, no. He teams up with Herman Mankiewicz, a star, as Chris mentioned, of the film Herm. Um, so... <laughs> I think right, yeah. No, he's good. kind of the star of it. But... He's making a joke, right? Sorry, because yeah, it's called Mank, not yeah. her. No, I know, but he's not the star of it, is he? The actor played it. Gary Oldman's the star. He's... Gary Gary Oldman. Oldman, sorry, it's a po- yeah. apologies. It's all right. It's fine. Pronunciation's key on this, <laughs> this episode. I'm uh, gonna be a bit of a taskmaster on that. So, if you've seen that film, uh, you're gonna be aware of much of the interesting backstory to the writing of Citizen Kane, both in its inspiration. And the arguments about the authorship. Let's do the inspiration first. William Randolph Hearst, a brilliant, but by the sounds of all my research, truly terrifying human being who was a newspaper tycoon and his shadow looms large over this film, both on screen and off. So 
Charles Foster Kane is based on William Randolph Hearst. Uh, similarities include the fact that Hearst owned the San Francisco Chronicle and, uh, sorry, Examiner, it's the Chronicle in the movie, and the New York Journal. He uh, encouraged and by all accounts started the 1898 war with Spain, between America and Spain. He was a supporter of the Nazi party, as we see in News on the March. We see Foster, Charles Foster came with Hitler. Xanadu. Famously, based on the unfinished Hearst Castle, or as he called it, the ranch, a place called San Simeon outside San Francisco, which I have driven past okay. uh, on the Pacific Coast Highway. And had I, had I known 10 years ago we were going to be covering it, I'd have gone inside. It's a museum now. Oh, is, I thought you, I would have broken in. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, at one point, this is how rich Hearst was. He had 25% of the world's art in Did Hearst it? Castle. <laughs> Can you believe it? He basically travelled Europe, as in the film, just snaffling up anything. He found a 12th century monastery in Spain, like the look of it, had it shipped brick by brick mm. to outside San Francisco and rebuilt on the grounds of Hearst Castle. Wow, OK. He I tried can... to buy St Donat's Castle in Wales, even though it wasn't up for sale. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, I'm rich, rich, rich! Yeah, I mean, if you're going to write a story about a person, this is a person to write a story about. Uh, there's Marion Davis, obviously, who is who, who is very similar to Susan mm. in the movie. I mean, yeah, I mean, as we go through the film, the, the parallels are mad. Mm. I mean, the Marion Davis thing, this is Hearst's mistress, Marion Davis, and um, Susan Alexander is based on her, although Orson Welles says... I've met, he said at the time, I've met Marion, I've met Marion Davis, not based on her, not based, lovely woman, lovely woman, unlike Susan Alexander. He said that in the midst of the turmoil that was caused by Hearst after this film, because it was her honour, like everything else, Hearst wasn't too bothered about. It was the fact that they took a pop at the woman he was in love with, Marion Davis, and that activated him. And that's why the shit hit the proverbial fan in this film. Yeah, well, Mank was friends with both Hearst and he knew Marion Davis relatively well. So he was properly betraying his former friend and, and his social circle when he wrote this. Well, as is described in the film Herm, it's uh, it's his ex, uh, ex extrication, uh, him him being thrown out of that social circle that made him the vicious writer that he was and decided to take aim at the guy who chucked him out. So be warned, <laughs> if I leave this podcast, <laughs> I will be writing a book about it. And the greatest film of all time. Who would, who would leave this podcast and how would they do it? <laughs> Professionally, hopefully. <laughs> it's too soon. So, right, uh, Hearst, basically. It's been described as his response to this film's release as being monstrous and fearsome. Uh, he basically removed it from all his papers and then started taking pot shots at the film. He used his Hollywood correspondent, Luell Parsons, to do a lot of this. So these are the things that Hearst threatened to do if this film was going to be released. Divulge salacious information about stars and studio executives. Uh, Drum up a nativist campaign against European movie industry people who were mostly Jewish and had fled Hitler. He lent on the Jewish MGM head, Louis Mayer, and or who then organised on Hearst's behalf a consortium of studio heads to buy the negative of the film and have it burnt. Wow. Head of RKO, George Schaefer, refused. He then had his newspapers pursue Wells. He got J. Edgar Hoover's FBI to investigate Wells. He uh, started writing... Uh, oh, this is one of my favourites. He got his Hollywood movie gossip columnist, Luella Parsons, I just mentioned, uh, contacted the local draft board to try and get Hearst conscripted to the army. Okay. And uh, this is the this is the worst. So yeah. Wells was in a restaurant and he was approached by a police detective who said, do not go back to your hotel room. 
I'm just giving you fair warning. There's a 14-year-old girl in the closet and two photographers waiting to take a photo of you Ooh, when not... you discover her. Okay. Uh, uh, legend has it that wasn't actually Hearst. That was one of his operatives, basically, trying to get a leg up in the business. But I think that was probably Hearst, <laughs> based on everything <laughs> I've read. So um, I'll go into the aftermath of Hearst's actions and the effect it had on his career at the end. Um, but it's worth noting that Wells truly believed the controversy he intentionally went after Hearst because he felt the controversy could do him no harm career-wise and, in his arrogance, assumed that he was, you know, a 25, six-year-old man taking on a 76-year-old over-the-hill media tycoon who had no fight left in him. And boy, boy, was he wrong. (laughs) Boy, oh boy. Uh, So... In terms of the writing, uh, once again, you can watch the film Home to uh, discover all of that. But uh, so a lot of it comes from Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles uh, sent him off to write his version and Orson wrote his own. And then Orson basically took both versions and amalgamated them, made some changes and came up with the screenplay for the movie. Now, part of uh, Mankiewicz's contract was that he was not allowed to ask for a writing credit. He was hired as a script doctor, Mm -hmm. despite the amount of work and the inspiration that he contributed to the script. But then he decides, do you know what? I just quite fancy being on this movie's screenplay credit because it's turning out rather well. (laughs) So... Well, says no. Uh, Mankiewicz threatens to go to the WGA and indeed writes to the Writers Guild and then takes it back and then threatens to claim full authorship of it and he believes he could get it. This terrifies Wells because it puts his contract into jeopardy because his contract says he writes and directs and stars in. And in the end, RKO give Mankiewicz a screenplay credit. And according to Wells' assistant, it was... Wells, who then circled his name and drew an arrow above his own, which is why Mankiewicz gets the first screenplay credit. Although that just reminds me of the scene in the movie where Kane finishes Leyland's article. (laughs) It's a similar thing. He did it to seem like an honourable man. Yeah. So uh, that's pretty much the story of uh, the screenplay. Look at all these pages of notes. Well, it's not. Pauline Kael, the famous film critic, uh, she won't let this lie. She decides that Mankiewicz isn't being given enough credit and indeed the entire script and the legacy of Orson and Citizen Kane belongs to Mankiewicz. So she writes this huge essay all about it in 1971 called Raising Kane. And it basically says Wells didn't have anything to do with this. This is all Mankiewicz. Following year, 1972, Peter Bogdanovich writes his own essay calling her out for taking uh, absolutely no undertaking of research to support her article. He said uh, he found a UCLA professor who said that Kale had cajoled him into revealing stuff about Wells uh, with the promise of a book contract that never materialised. And then she distorted his findings in her piece. Cut to 1985. Robert Carragher's book, The Making of Citizen Kane, basically goes through it script by script. Every draft, every note that was made, and <laughs> comes up with a much more uh, diplomatic solution to this constant question. And it's that, fundamentally, it was Mankiewicz's idea, but the transformation Wells did to the script was equally important. So they both deserve credit. Of course. It was a collaboration. Oh, yeah. It was a collaboration. And also, I mean, if you look at um, Wells' childhood, he's drawing on stuff from his own life as well. 
in terms of his his mother died when he was young his dad drank and he just he was he was forced to grow up too soon mm. and so he was a, he was a prodigy and i think but he was drawing from the misery of his own childhood and and i think that's where a lot of the ending of this film comes from is mm. that he thought he could have been a happier person if he'd lived that life and the similarities between wells and hurst and therefore kane are quite numerous. I mean, the ego, the desire for sensationalism and the understanding of what sensationalism could deliver in terms of mass awareness, both of them were the same in that respect. Yeah, I'd never noticed before. Um, oh, my God, where is it? The first line that uh, Charles Kane says in this film. Do you remember it? Do you know what it is? When he steps off the boat. He says, don't believe everything you hear on the radio. Ha! It's a meta joke about War of the Worlds. Like, back then, he's just like, yeah, I, it's a wink at the audience yeah. straight away. Oh, my God. You do need to watch the Battle for Zitz and Kane. They go into the War of the Worlds thing. And Wells is approached halfway through that broadcast by the head of the station who goes, you have to stop this now. Panic is happening. And Wells goes... That's it's meant to happen. That's why I'm doing this. <laughs> and then there's footage of him surrounded by reporters in the foyer of the building the following day. And they're going, did you know there was panic on the streets? And he goes, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. I had no idea. Um, the only other thing I'll mention, which I, I think is fascinating, is um, the cinematographer Greg Toland, who is the cinematographer on this. He was one of the best cinematographers working in Hollywood at the time. And often this film is credited with inventing a new way of telling stories visually. Mm. Uh, a lot of the techniques are so modern. I won't list them here, but there are numerous things in this movie that have gone on and are still used today. Now, Greg Toland actually approached Wells to work on this movie and he wanted to do it because he wanted to try all these things that no other movie would let him do so all these ideas were bubbling away in him that we still use today and wells because of his um the fact that he wasn't a, a seasoned director he could get away with trying all these techniques yeah out. well toland was though toland was experienced mm. he was one of the best in the business and so it's smart to surround yourself with experts but equally i think the other interesting aspect of, of that is he brought in this experienced cinematographer but as for the cast it was all his mates it was all the mercury theater because he wanted it all to be unknowns and that must have been quite something when you watch it you know that as an audience you're used to seeing movie stars unless you've been to the theater uh, you don't know who any of these people are mm. effectively and and they're all so well cast and obviously it was a launch pad for you know 10 odd careers Absolutely. And also, it means that we get a credit sequence, not unlike Con Air, which mm. is the best thing about it. Oh, uh, yeah. I was like, oh, this is like Con Air. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it's done for a reason with Wells, yeah. isn't it? It's like I'm introducing you to these people. It's a curtain call, effectively, for mm. this theatre guy, whereas yeah. Con Air, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, did you and, see the and Predator. And Predator. Oh, the fake documentary behind yeah, the scenes so he's thing. Just yeah. like going, and these are my friends, and yeah. I won't have to say these names again because yeah. you'll know. And, it's, and they're all like, oh, hey! Like, it's really cute. It's, that's the only behind-the-scenes footage that exists of this movie. Yeah, yeah. and it was really. unheard of doing a trailer like that before. It's a completely new way of I mean, promoting I'd a movie. I'd be disappointed to be honest. I'd be like, but what's the film about though? <laughs> Where's the explosions and the cool music? But fine. That's what that was Hitchcock's thing though. He just walk. He just walk up to the camera and go, yeah. "This is going to be good." <laughs> yeah. Um, it won an Oscar. Uh, only one Oscar uh, of, I think, around nine. It was nominated for for screenplay for Mankiewicz and Wells, neither of which was there to accept it. Uh, it did OK, but not nearly as well as Wells was expecting and pull his career afterwards. We'll talk about at the end. But it was the French, wasn't it, who 
mm. who found, who discovered it. Yes. So God bless the French. Mm. As yeah. always. It sort of disappeared and then they were like, this film is... Is fan- actually quite good. Also, 1941... <laughs> how you pronounce that in French. <laughs> is it now? Also, 1941 is not an, a, a, an easy year for cinema because no. World War II is happening. Mm. This film didn't really make it to most of Europe. So a lot of people outside of America discovered this film. It's why this, this it's been an ongoing journey this film has gone on. They were discovering it gradually. Mm. But what a movie. What a movie. And do you know what? We should get into this movie. Let's. Right after this break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to News on the March. <laughs> As... Don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so we're at Xanadu. It's run down. We immediately know the owner is wealthy. There's a Bengal tiger cage, but it's empty. Monkeys are Roaming free. It's dilapidated. <laughs> it's a haunted house. It's ho- yeah, it's horror. It's a gothic horror film, yeah. isn't it, in these first minutes? And it's also sort of, and I feel a lot of this film, it's the trappings of film noir before film noir was event- invented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's inventing genres. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> one, of the, one of the greatest movies ever made, V. Not a fan <laughs> of narration. <laughs> Quite a lot. How do I feel about this? So, I'm so, there's so many surprises ahead for me. I love News on the March, mm. I, but I was a little bit like, why are you ruining the whole film? Mm. But the cut at the end where you're then back in the room with the staff, I was like, oh, that's got, that's just, you know, that was yeah. enough. It's to, brave, isn't it? it yeah. We're going to tell you the same story twice. Yeah, mm. which normally and, is my bugbear as well. I hate narration and I hate knowing what 
what's going to happen. But the way it's laid out in the reel, when you get to the, you know, people that are introducing their section is like, let's go on and now we're going to look at the marriage. And you're like, oh, can't wait to see. And that's what Wells wanted to do. He wanted to remove the element of like what's going to happen and focus on the why it happened. Yes. And so it presents all these events and then you're kind of like, but why? Yeah. And I, I kind of think when I watch it, oh, they're going to undermine what the news said. Oh, but yeah, actually, yeah. no, it's pretty much all true. Faithful, yeah. There's just more to it. Mm. But, um, I mean, this isn't. there are so many narrators in this film. I, I, I've never read the script. I should do that one day because I can't imagine how complex this script is in terms of um, who's talking about what, when and where they are and, and, and who knows what. Yeah. Because you're going to go into it now, but we've got we've got a, we've got a journalist, haven't we? We've got a, someone that we're seeing it, the film through their eyes. Yeah, and uh, the one thing I will say, first of all, uh, just before that, is you know it, it really does set up the the idea of this man being an enigma. The fact that some people think he's a fascist, some people think he's a communist. It's like who is he? Which is like you say, we come to this room with the journalists there. Although uh, before we get there. The bit that you mentioned where he steps off the boat and it's Orson Welles in the, the prosthetics, those prosthetics. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Just incredible. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, but they didn't predict what Orson Welles was going to look like when he's old. <laughs> <laughs> Had a few pounds on. <laughs> he's in the battle for Citizen Kane. There's an interview with him done much later. Yeah. I mean, famously, um, he had a huge appetite. He used to eat before he performed his plays in New York. He'd have uh, two steaks with two baked potatoes before every play. Yum! That's a dream. Yeah. Um, what? And also in that sequence that where you see him with Hitler. I mean, that's always a bit of a shocker, yep. yeah. but obviously so true in terms of what the allies, the friendships that everyone formed with Hitler and the, 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 the sort of springboard they gave him. But um, I was just thinking this time, this looks, and, and that's an actor playing Hitler. Yeah. This looks much more realistic than Forrest Gump, it which does. was made much more recently. <laughs> I know. That's so true. <laughs> that's so true. Uh, the makeup artist was uh, an assistant to the head of the makeup department called Morris Cedarman, who he came up with a new way of doing the prosthetics, which they used on this film. Now, traditionally, only the heads of a department would ever get credited in the credits, and he was an assistant, so he wasn't going to get a credit. And Orson Welles approached the head of the department and went, I'm giving your assistant a credit, and the guy went, absolutely not, uh, I get the credit. And so there is no credit for the makeup department in the movie because he couldn't give it to the assistant. The head, he didn't want to give it to. And so he took out a... Uh, a page in uh, the Hollywood uh, trade press saying thanks to everybody who gets a screen credit for Citizen Kane and thanks to those who don't, uh, and particularly Morris Cedarman, the best makeup man in the world. Oh. He, God, he, this film really was all about credit, wasn't it? <laughs> and Morris Cedarman, his big thing, putting orange peel on people's faces. Job done. That's how he made you look cold. <laughs> I mean, we are saying... Thank you, black and white. Well, that's what I was going to say. We are saying it looks great. It's yeah. in black and white. Yes. I mean, they might have been orange on set. <laughs> so, uh, I initially thought the newspaper man was called uh, Mr. Orson, but it's Mr. Olsen. I was like, oh, you have it. Oh, you have <laughs> you it. Put yourself in You've here. You called him the man taking down Hearst. So, we've got this screening room. Um, this uh, was actually the first thing uh, Wells filmed, uh, and he filmed uh, this and started filming the movie without telling anyone, claiming he was doing test shoots just so he'd be left alone, because uh, RKO were trying to make him do a movie called uh, Men from Mars uh, because of War of the Worlds, yeah. and so he secretly started filming this. Um, we get the Rosebud. Find out what those mm. words meant, This is the last words. This is a film about fixing the end of a newsreel. <laughs> That's the plot. 
Yeah, you're right. It is I basic. Mean, I'm not going to have a go at Citizen Kane for obvious reasons. It does an amazing job oh. of making you care because what? Right, both of these films, uh, rich man, bit sad. Okay. But why would I care what this rich man thought or was in his life? Why would I even give a shit? Like, what's the way in? Mm. And they do just about make me care enough to be like, oh, you can synthesize. It's just but obvious I, time where they talk about, you know, the lives of men and whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's exclusionary language. But it is interesting to, I like the engine, find out this. It'll be a simple thing. Love all of that. And no, love great. The, that's a great button. Yeah, It'll probably that. be something simple. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And I just like the idea. It's very, you know, the human experience of like what someone is on, you know, whoever they are, whatever is on your mind when you pass explains everything. But aren't they doing different things? I certainly had different experiences watching both these movies this week because I, I certainly think The Aviator is going for sympathy and yes. you're meant to care about Howard Hughes and the outcome. Yeah. Whereas I don't think this is. This is basically, if anything, this is saying, don't worry if you don't have a lot of money because yeah. you'll end up miserable anyway. So it's it's saying, I think that's the interest here. It's like, rich man ends up sad. I'll be like, great, tell me why because I have nothing <laughs> But there's a weird thing, isn't it, when you when you sit down in a cinema and you feel like you're making a deal with the movie, that you find yourself wanting the protagonist, more often than not, to get to win or to succeed. And obviously, both these films, as it goes along, there's more and more things they do that make you dislike them. But I felt so many times I'm on their side when I look at it in hindsight, I'm like... Why the fuck did I care about this person? This is an awful person, but it's the nature of film that you kind of want them not to be bad or sure, you want yeah. them not to be unhappy yeah mm. well it's just the, why do you go and watch a film like what is it for is it to feel good is it to feel intrigued like different audiences want different things in different countries mm. but principally we just want to sit down and, and be entertained i do anyway yeah and, and obviously when we, we we get to the moment coming up with it with his childhood you think oh yeah well that's sad yes well let's play your favorite game v uh jump to the end uh, did you <laughs> feel sorry for him as he drops the snow globe i mean it's not the end because it's the start as well but you only really know how he got there by the end the um, the, the, the sadness that he feels for his childhood sled I and the innocence sorry. of youth i felt sorry for him not being able for all his worldliness that he couldn't see the folly of accumulating so much stuff and that's what that smoke stack at the end is meant to be you can accumulate everything mm. in the loot of the world and all you're reduced to is a little puff of smoke mm. and I liked that and I felt sad that he couldn't see that you don't and, need all this stuff and, and, and that's the thing he's not the only one it's a repeating thing in history is people have done this yeah. and ended up miserable and also it's interesting watching it now because we still we still know the name of the film, we still know the name Orson Welles. He would be so chuffed, like when you're making he's 26 making this, and he's like, in almost a hundred years, people will still be talking about this film because obviously you're, you know that you're not truly dead until the last person alive stops saying your name. And then it just made me think of all the people over history that would have considered themselves to be great and to be worth remembering that have just gone by the wayside. Yeah, I mean that is great, but you're wrong about his feelings because this was the greatest film of all time in his lifetime, and he did not care for this. Film all that much okay. and he didn't really respect people who loved it and he didn't really want to talk about it and he wasn't happy with aspects of it it's quite a funny thing he just did not give a fuck really? <laughs> I'll tell you why I know for a fact that's true as well because watching the Battle for Citizen Kane as I said there is an interview with Orson Welles in it and you're like oh my god you've sat down with Orson Welles to talk about Citizen Kane I can't wait to see him pop up frequently 
in this two-hour documentary. <laughs> he's in it like three times for about five seconds a piece. It's like, that was everything usable. But that was everything he'd to... say about this movie. Well, that's interesting. What more did he want? Because he, well, he had huge ego. ambitions. He had huge ambitions and he just feels like Hollywood screwed him over. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they messed with so many of the films he made. He believed that uh, um, uh, Magnificent Ambersons was better film than this and then it got, it got re-edited behind his back and he, he had these great plans that he spent a long time trying to make Heart of Darkness and he just mm. felt he had masterpieces in him. He didn't think this was one of them. Gosh, some people are never happy. So, I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, we really have jumped to the end, but that's that's the legacy. Like, basically, the controversy that surrounded this film was what destroyed Wells's authorship and his ability. Final cut was rescinded immediately afterwards by RKO. He was forced to renegotiate the contract of dreams because of the damage this film had done to the film industry because of Hearst's wrath. So, on Thursday, we're going to be talking the... (laughs) (laughs) We're off to El Rancho Nightclub. God, we're only here. Uh, Yeah, in Atlantic City. Susan Alexander Kane. Still using his name. Interesting. Uh, she is played by Dorothy Cummingor. Uh, if you thought Wells's story off the back of this and the destruction of his career was tragic, get a load of this, V. Go on. Uh, the actress Dorothy Cummingor. She was discovered by Charlie Chaplin. Years after this film, she was doing all right. Then uh, the anti-communist movement started and she was called in front of the un-American House of Representatives thing. And she was on fire. She took the piss out of them and made them look like fools. It was reported by in the Hollywood press how brilliant she was. She took no shit from them. So do you know what they did? Uh, They hired two police detectives and framed her for being a prostitute. And then because of that, her ex-husband banned her from seeing her kids. Oh, no. She turned to drink. uh, Her current husband then had enough grounds to have her committed. She was told by the judge if she accepts going to a hospital for a short stay in inverted commas, she will then get all the prostitution charges dropped and ends up spending two years in the worst insane asylum in California. And then... And then she didn't see her kids till they were adults. I'm sorry, it's not a happy ending. Jesus Christ. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Although... I'll, put, I'll, I'll button it with a positive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the husband who refused to let her see her kids till they were adults yeah. did write the treatment for invasion of the body snatchers. Right. So, Every cloud. on balance. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Worth it. <laughs> I mean, it's a great movie. <laughs> so, what a bastard. But, what a bastard. But, but invasion of the body snatchers. But the, he would have known yeah. it was a framing. In fact, there's three great invasion of the body snatchers movies. Yeah. So, um, one, one, one win, win, win. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I guess we we do have him to thank for the Daniel Craig uh, movie, The Invasion. So bad again. <laughs> it's a it's a roller coaster. This show a roller coaster. So uh, Mr. Thompson's journalist, she just goes, "Get out, get out!" And Gino goes, "Get her another highball, a double." She she doesn't need one, Gino. Look at her. <laughs> what are you doing? You're an enabler. <laughs> Jesus, Gino. Like, like us after the live show. <laughs> So he goes to see the Walter Thatcher Memorial Library and we get our flashback to 1871. Young little Kane there playing on Rosebud. Um, Rosebud, I'll do the clean version and then Chris can do the other version. So Rosebud was a symbol of Mankiewicz's own damaged childhood. He had a treasured bicycle stolen while he visited a public library and not replaced by his family as punishment. And that was the prototype for Kane's sled. Mankiewicz says the name Rosebud came from a horse called Old Rosebud that he once bet on and won quite well. Chris? 
Um, I, th- I thought we'd do this at the end. Sure, um, let's do it at the end. Do it at the end. Yeah. Do it at the end. It's a real, uh, it's, a real good, it's a good ending. Real teaser. Real, uh, <laughs> real tickler. <laughs> Oi, come on, <laughs> Jesus! So the father, Kane's father, he's not getting any say. Uh, Mrs. Kane is signing over the mine documents to Mr. Thatcher, who becomes Kane's legal guardian, sets up a trust fund for the boy that he'll get in his 20s. Dad is really pissed off until he's told exactly how much money he's going to be getting per annum. Why can't mum go with him? Don't know. Don't think she wants to. I mean, it's it's a strange it's a strange situation. This I, I was trying to understand it. I was trying to research it. Like, is this normal? I think this was normal that people would sell their kids to go somewhere to have a better education. Yeah, and in exchange get money, and the the kid is better off with these rich people at a rich school than with us in Colorado. I thought it was because she was going to be wealthy anyway. The gold is all in your name, Mrs. Kane, and that she had sent the boy away because the dad, if he stayed with the family and this daddy doesn't see his dad very often, he would just try and steal all the money off her via him. Sure, and, and also, I mean, I think the key line, which I've never really clocked before, was that he's, she's sending him away so the dad can't thrash him anymore. Yeah. Look at it. Highlighted in red. Yeah, yeah. So but he's then an I just ab- wondered, abused child. She's so wealthy now. Can't she just go with him and live in a big house and protect him? I think it's an interesting scene because you go from thinking this dad, because the dad says the line early on in that and he goes, people are going to think I'm a bad father. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. She's doing this and he's not a bad dad. And then seconds later, he's like, you'll get a thrashing. And you're like, that, okay. Also, remember the times that you're in. Like it, that, I'm not excusing it, but people hitting their kids wasn't as taboo as mm. it is now. Are you so, allowed? You're not allowed. Oh, no, it's no. ridiculous. But oh, not publicly. The in idea the, of it, in, I mean, thrashing is a very heavy term. But, so I don't really, I just, I find it hard to place in terms of social mores because that's something that has shifted. Mm. But nevertheless, mum says, I'm sending him away so you can't yes. get to him. Yes, yeah. she does say that. So, um, yeah. and, and the fact that, you know, there's something up, there's something going on with this mum. You're saying that as a loving mum, this mum has his bad pack for a week and that cold look on her face. It's hard to understand where yeah. she's coming from. It is, it is. Yeah, I thought she was just so stricken by circumstance that this was unavoidable. So she got the bag pack to get it over with. Oh, it's really horrible to think about. Like, But I just, I felt very bad for him. I think she's doing it for the right reason. She's doing it to keep the dad away and because this will give him the best best opportunities possible and she wants the best for a little boy of course turns out not to be the case idiot she's wrong yeah (laughs) stupid mum but we see his childhood sled getting covered in snow cut to a birthday party in the future he's getting a new sled Oh, it's empty. It doesn't mean anything, though. I mean, it is fun how it's hiding in plain sight, where he's playing on the sled, he hits the man with the sled, the sled's covered mm. in snow, he gets the sled a minute later. Mm. It's funny that it's all there, but you, you wouldn't you wouldn't for a second think... <laughs> because it's a stupid name for a sledge, and also who gives their sledges names? That's it. Mm. I, I, I would give it... You give a bike a name. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah do you? No. All you right, never, Amblin you... 83. No, I don't give <laughs> my bike a name. If you've never heard of a Boris bike, I cannot help you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a branding exercise. Oh, God, I had a dream about Boris Johnson. That's, oh, That's, what, all, all That's na- the news, babe. That you got oh, it is. It's, honestly, it's so depressing that he's in my dreams as well as in real life. <laughs> He'll love that. Also, yeah. all names are branding exercises. I think you'll find <laughs> Vicky. Oh. Um, also, That's true, actually. Also, I was given a name to get me through. My mum was very clear, like, just to get you through life. So you have to have a royal name because it will never, you'll get somewhere with well, it. Well, you, yet you hate me calling you Victoria. Yeah, I do. And she never did either. So it makes no sense. Yeah, but written down, it looks good. <laughs> yeah, down, it looks I good. guess. Yeah. It balances the, cr- the ordinariness of Crompton. Also, I'm, a, I'm stealing. All right, Amblin 85. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Very good. Uh, all right. 
Charles is 25, I think, and he gets his money, complete control of the sixth largest fortune in the world. Uh, what's he going to do? He doesn't have any interest in mines. He wants to buy a newspaper. Absolutely what happened with Hearst. He said to his dad, I, I'm no interest in the family mine, the gold mine. I want to buy a paper. So buys the San Francisco Chronicle. But, but what's interesting here is that as the film goes on, we learn why he's done that. It's to get at Thatcher. The yeah. only reason he's doing this is to spite the man who's brought him up yeah. and, and separated him from his mother in his eyes. He wants. To, he says later, "I want to be everything that you hate, yes. a Thatcher." So it's, there is something really driving him, and it's spite. Do you not think he is an idealist as well at this stage? Do you not think he is? seeing the opportunity of championing the working man because that's i mean he says it a lot but he does, does he mean it yes which is again again exactly like hurst it was like he was like i'm making a paper for the working man because they never had one at this point in history in the late yeah. 19th century there was no paper for them and he saw a gap in the market now was he doing that because he knew it would make him a shit ton of money the, the yeah. question is was he a liar from the start mm. was he someone is he someone who changes over the course of the film or is he someone um, who... No, I think it's those two things. I've lost my train of thought here. No, I think you're right, because I think it's that weird thing. I watch it and I go, I think this, you know, you see a, 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 a common thing here where people are uh, idealists in their youth and very liberal. And as people get older, they do tend to get well, more and more conservative well, no, in their values. It, it's this famous quote from Winston Churchill that's attributed to him, but I, I'm not sure he ever actually said it, where he said, if, if you're a liberal when you're 25, you've got a heart... And if you're a if you're a if you if you aren't a conservative by the time you're 35, you're stupid. Mm. And I wonder if that's him, or is he one of these liberals who talks the talk, which Citizen Kane does for the whole movie, but doesn't actually walk the walk. Mm. Uh, well, on that note, it's time for another edition of Inflation Corner. I've got it. It's the 1890s. He's losing a million a year on his paper. How much in... Oh, she's done it. I've done she it. She saw it coming. I've only done it. I've done it for once in this film and once in the other one, because otherwise it's just going to be... We have one Inflation Corner a show, yeah. otherwise we're going to be doing the Inflation Podcast are spin-off. You, are you ready? Clash of the titles, Inflation Podcast. A <laughs> uh, million dollars a year in 1941 is $20 million a year today. But the scene it's set in... Is about 1898. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, let's wait, wait, wait. How many more years is that? Don't, Another. Don't stop getting inflation corner <laughs> wrong. $40 million. Tom Alton has uh, tweeted us about right. inflation corner. It's not a criticism. Saying it's an integral part of the pod. Um, <laughs> Vicky, please find attached a useful link to the Bank of England's inflation calculator to make life easier. I mean, I was thinking you weren't doing it on your fingers or on paper. <laughs> I was hoping that you were using some kind of internet resource. It's patchy. Uh, sometimes it's a guess, I'll be honest. So it's the 1890s. You're saying he's losing. We, didn't, we need a figure here, V. $40 million $40 a year. $40 million a year. He's losing on the, pa- on the paper. Great button to this scene. He thinks it's going to be 60 years before he has to close. Fast forward, he's closing, and it isn't 60 <laughs> years in the future. It's 29, I guess. Great. Lovely, lovely. It's the depression. So... Uh, Mr. Bernstein is next to be next to be interviewed by Thompson. Uh, he's now chairman of the board. He tells him about Mr. Jedediah Leyland, Kane's school friend. Oh, we see him taking over the Inquirer, the Sanford, the New York Inquirer. Sorry, I keep getting confused. I've so many papers I've been through. The New York Inquirer is the paper that Kane buys. So uh, he's eating at the desk, and Leyland says, "Are you still eating?" And Kane says, "I'm still hungry." That's Kane. That is him in a nutshell in that moment. It's like his appetite for anything, power, money, 
art, mm. insatiable. Or, or was that just Orson Welles? Exactly. I'm, I'm always hungry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, have you got any wine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what does, it, what does it say about him? It says that he loved work and when he wasn't working, he'd drink everything, eat everything and hate himself. Wow. Mm. So uh, that Half was, a good life. That was, yeah. <laughs> Genius, though. Apparently, his staging of Julius Caesar in New York is still regarded as Shakespeare's Julius Caesar as the most important staging of a Shakespeare play ever to take place in America. He transferred the action to Nuremberg. 3D, yeah. 3D, 3D yeah. yeah, yeah cool. 4DX, actually. Amazing. Yeah. He put an animated cat in it. Yeah, sprayed a bit of water at people. <laughs> oh, I love the wind. Someone's just left the door in the cinema open. <laughs> he de-aged Julius Caesar. <laughs> yeah, deep Such faked. a visionary. He deep faked him. Yeah, AI. He used AI. Right, uh, so he's creating the news now using devious methods. Um... Hearst did this. Uh, it's f- so fascinating. Hearst used to do things like um, he'd pay a woman to jump overboard on a ship in the harbour, yeah. in San Francisco Harbour, to see how quickly she was rescued. And then if she wasn't rescued quickly enough, he'd write a critical piece about mm. the Coast Guard. But it's difficult because you can see how someone could justify that as an act of public service mm. because he's testing a public... We're paying for that, yep. so we should see if it works. Which is exactly what people will be like, my Thank God for her, otherwise I'd yeah. never know that if I fell overboard. Yeah, it's exposing, you know, where things are falling down. Yep. Uh, so, uh, much like Hearst does in real life, Kane buys the best newspaper team in the oh, land. Oh, this bit is so good! Mm, yeah. I love this so, so much! In real life, Hearst bought Joseph Pulitzer's uh, reporting team from the New York World for his New York Journal. It's so good. I only got confused because you've got the photograph of the, the old dudes, right? And they're like, the Chronicle, the circulation is 495,000. And then the photograph becomes real. And it's like, that's just so good. Mm. But then he's saying to them, welcome to the Inquirer. Our circulation is over 600,000. So they did, they went from the Inquirer having 26,000 to over 600,000 without those old dudes. So no. They, okay, what have I missed? No, it, it jumps forward in time. Yeah. And then it jumps forward mm. in time again. Oh, yeah. I see. They overtake, oh, they overtake them by hiring these guys. Right, okay. I get yeah. It. yeah. So, I love it. Do you like the party? Oh. It's, I was like, did you book them, though? Because he's like, oh, the dancing girls are here. But it's like, you... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't book them. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get them to write that song. It, it's a song about him. Yeah. Did well, he it's write that song? Uh, It's the new theme tune to Clash of the Titles, and it's Citizen Zane. What's his name? <laughs> Citizen Zane. I think he'd love that, wouldn't it, he? You he wish. would love that, so What's his name? Alexander. <laughs> and we've got to sing it. Yeah. But look, crying. Yeah, we, I, I booked a rehearsal space <laughs> around the corner for immediately after the show. We've got to dress up as showgirls <laughs> <laughs> and high kick. <laughs> that is so hot. <laughs> Next live show. <laughs> it's about time oh. you dressed up. So. Yeah, I'm in. I'm ready. Good. So um, the Spanish War is started by Kane. Leyland's not too happy about the way Kane is now using the papers to forward his own ideals. In real life, Hurst. Wow, he uh, he basically started this war. He sent the King of Spain his terms for surrender. Did he? He basically preempted the government's actions on this and sent a reporter out to demand Spain's surrender. He hired a steamer and prepared it to be sunk 
in the Suez Canal if he wanted to delay the Spanish Navy mm. because it would make for better news. There was a, a woman who was arrested in Cuba, a Cuban woman, who she was trying to assassinate a Spanish general and she was locked up. And Hearst didn't like that story, but he liked her because she was beautiful. So he put her on the cover of the paper, said she was trying to break her father out of prison. No mention of assassination. And then he could have bribed her out at any time. He orchestrated three failed attempts to break her out before then on the fourth attempt deciding to free her. Right. Because it made for better news and he could string it out over issue after issue after issue of the paper. Wow. He's... Mad. That's mad. <laughs> well, it's a full-on God complex, isn't it? And I guess that's something that could connect these two films as well, is it people that have God complexes. For sure. And uh, much like in this, uh, in real life, Cain was brought down because he could not get um, a place in... Uh, he held a place in Congress for a while, but he couldn't get elected governor, and he certainly couldn't be president. And his biggest dream was to become president. But, unfortunately, at one stage he called for someone in his papers to put a bullet in McKinley, the then president. Someone shot him dead, which kind of tarred Hearst for a long time and why his political aspirations went... <laughs> he killed the fucking president. Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll do, that should do that. That should mean you're barred. Mm. We will not accept your CV for this role because you killed the last one. Yeah. Yeah, even you can't argue with that kind of logic. So... Thompson's talking to Leland, and this is our first real handle on Kane. When Leland talks about how he only loved himself, maybe his mum, and he had lots of love for him, but he had none to give, which I think is our first indication of the theme that is going to inhabit the rest of this movie, which is that he just loves himself, and everything is entirely self-serving, and anything else outside of that is just an act. Mm. The, 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 the speech he gives before he gets caught out by his wife at the rally, and the foreshadowing as well. He sees his son disappear off in a car, and then that's obviously how his son dies. Yeah, but you don't see that, do you? Which we'll come to at okay. the end, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, JW, uh, JW Getty, boss Getty, who he's trying to take down. Uh, that was a real person that Hearst had a grudge with uh, a guy called Charles Murphy, a powerful political figure in New York who stopped Hearst becoming mayor of New York. I do love the headlines joke where it's oh, like, yeah, that's Hearst wins and you're like, oh, it's going to say Hearst lost and it's fraud at the yeah, ballot. That's so good. That's so prescient. Mm. Yeah, it is. Uh, Leyland basically goes, I've had it with you. I'm drunk. I want to go away to Chicago and write uh, the drama section. That's going to come back. <laughs> That's important. So off Leyland goes to do that. Uh, Kane then marries Susan. Uh, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Emily. Have we gone past Emily? Sorry. Uh, unless you've got anything to say about Emily. I kind of skirt. Oh, actually, I won't. Well, you've got the great scene at the dinner table where they drift apart. The, the 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 time jumps, the quick cuts yeah, between yeah. breakfast. That's so good. Yeah, these whip pans where just physically and, and mentally, mm -hmm. this couple who are so in love at the start, just year after year, it's just, it's just they're just being pushed further and further apart until, as, as he becomes more cynical until she's reading the opposition paper at the table. Oh, yeah, like that. I never like, noticed that before. Such a good... That, yeah. that blew my mind. This I was like, oh, what a great way to end the scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. No dialogue. It's, uh, yeah. we've, we've gone as far as the dialogue could go. We've done the funny, like, oh, shut up. Oh, I'll tell them what they're going to think to, like, I fucking hate you. To, like, <laughs> yeah. reading the paper, reading the opposition's paper. 
So, yeah, uh, he bumps into Susan uh, initially on <laughs> the street. I thought she was off her face on pain medication. She is. Is she? Yeah. She's giggling because she's had yes. pain medication. Yeah, because I think, like, it's it's a fate nearly worse than death having toothache back then. Yes, that's true. And so they're giving you the hardest drugs. <laughs> right. And I think he thinks she's a sex worker. Yes. And that's why he goes up and then he gets the shock when she, he goes to shut the door and she says, no, it stays open. And so suddenly he's on the back foot yeah. because he thinks he's going to get some rumpy pumpy <laughs> and and then he's sort of I think he's he suddenly becomes interested in when she genuinely doesn't know who he is yeah which is the opposite of what they the lyrics of his song that says everyone knows who he is yeah I think I think this is the most important scene in the movie genuinely I think this this scene him meeting her and the circumstances in which he meets Susan is probably the most important scene in the movie this is my thinking my thinking is he is on his way to the warehouse mm. where Rosebud is stored. Mm-hmm. He would have basically got to the root of his issues had he gone to that warehouse. He'd have discovered the sled. He would have maybe, I guess it's sort of the equivalent of therapy. Mm-hmm. He would have actually gone, who am I? What have I become? And answered some fundamental questions about him. But he runs into Susan, and what Susan provides him with is an opportunity as Many of us have done when you're in a new relationship, you just get to redesign yourself and you get to see yourself through someone new's eyes. And boy, is that a great feeling. You just get to reinvent yourself because this new person, as we just saw with the breakfast montage, doesn't know your flaws, mm. does not hate you, and <laughs> basically is just like, you're Massive great, tick. you're great. And it's a, it is a selfish act. It's a, it, it is and it isn't, because in theory, you know, it then leads on to, you know, a kind of, you know, a mutual love. But in that instance, what you were taking from that is a purely ego thing. It's like, this person thinks I'm great because they don't fucking they know don't know me. who I am. <laughs> yeah, uh, but also he, he sees an opportunity to shape her as well, doesn't he? It's, it's taking back control. He's lost control of this previous marriage. I can take control of this situation. And obviously the control becomes more pronounced as the film progresses on poor Susan. But did you notice what object is in the foreground in her apartment? No. It's the snow globe. Oh, is it? The fucking snow globe. I never know. I've watched it ten times. Never noticed it. That's the snow globe. (laughs) But that would suggest that he loves her. And I do wonder if Charles Kane actually loves um, Susan. But cannot find a way to show it. But yeah, I, I'm, 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 we'll, we'll, as we as we talk about what he does to her, it's I, I get confused. I really do. I'm not convinced. But this is this is this is such, if not the pivotal scene in the movie. This is where it seems like there's no way back for Kane. Um, I mean, your version does hold water as well, Chris. But I just think here he's basically rather than get to the root of who he is, he's found another sticking plaster in Susan to put over that and just redesign himself as a brilliant man Mm. again. So yeah, great, great scene. And then he marries her. Uh, This is a little fun thing. Just dialogue wise, the dialogue in this scene, it is great where he's, she's like, he's like, uh, she's going to sit. The journalist says, are you going to sing at the, uh, the Metropolitan Opera house? He says, we are. I like that. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah we we are. Yeah. Uh and uh then someone goes uh someone goes uh, uh he she says to the journalist he said to me um if I don't sing there he says he's going to build me one and he goes that won't be necessary. <laughs> cuts to him building her an opera house. There's so many good gags on the cuts of scenes <laughs> yeah. in this movie. So yeah. The scene with Leyland 
he's watched the opera. Well, we see the opera, first of all. Uh, incredible shot as it goes up goes through up. the rafters. Yeah. Uh, amazing. And the guy just holds his nose. Yeah, because so, I don't actually know if she's bad or good. No, I don't either. who does? Yeah. Like, oh. It's obvious she's bad later when she's having her music lesson because the film is t- holding your hand and saying mm. she's terrible. But when she opens her mouth, you think... Well, that sounds like opera to me. But in in the in the um, one of the headlines that the Chronicle posts is is they call her because we've obviously had this blackmail happen that the tryst has been exposed. Uh, they put singer in inverted commas. Yeah, is what Charles Kane's doing here for the for the next twenty minutes of the film trying to remove those inverted commas? Well, that's the di- that's the dialogue. Jed says that yeah. to him. He was trying to remove the commas, and it's like that makes perfect sense because singer means sex worker, and he can't have that because he loves her. Which it is interesting because he thought, I agree, he did think she was a sex worker when she's on the yeah. street with him. So is it, why is that such an affront to him? But then has he been forced to marry her? Because the only way out of a scandal like that is to marry the woman. Yeah. I don't know. So does he love her or is he just sort of And he forced... needs some new mission because this com- his, his political career has ended. Mm. Yeah. And then the next scene, he's suddenly obsessed with this mission yeah. to make this woman a successful mm. singer. But why but does it have to be but... opera? That's the only thing that like, couldn't... Was there no... Because, so, again, it can't contextualise the time. Because hip-hop wasn't a big mm. thing wasn't a th- And she's not at, very at good at point. that, I guess. Scat. I mean, just, yeah, but they would have. Yeah. Okay. I just wondered if she could have been a lounge singer, but is that code word for. Uh, that's prostitute. Sex worker. Yeah. Sex worker. Right. Sorry. Oh. Jesus. God. How, how, how am I still not using the P word? I've got all this time. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's that. He wants he wants the, the, the culture that comes with opera, the highbrowness being noticed in the right circles. And uh, Leyland is writing a very honest review, but he falls asleep. Convenient. <laughs> Don't skip on the job. The amount of times I fell asleep halfway through a review <laughs> on a typewriter, like kipping on a podcast. Yeah, those comfy, comfy typewriters. Yeah, uh, and then we're back in the now, and Leyland says Kane finished the bad notice to prove to Leyland that he was an honest man. He was always trying to build something. Uh, Susan left him after he built Xanadu for her. In real life, Marion Davis stayed with. Hurst till the very end. She did not do a Susan Alexander. She was yeah. there as his health failed. Yeah, but he never married her. No, that's the di- big difference. Mm. That, 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 that these two uh, divorced. But yeah, I mean, but yeah, he was trying to shape her career, uh, William Hurst, as much as as, as Charles Kane oh, did yeah. here. In terms of, um, he, he sort of by by doing that, he damned her reputation. But he he put the weight of the papers behind her. He put a reporter on her beat. That one person's job was to follow her around and write about. Uh, and her. she had affairs with Charlie Chaplin, among others, while she was with Hurst, and just sort of basically because she knew he. Loved her, and he'd take her back, and it kept him on his toes to find out that she'd had an affair with Charlie Chaplin. But what I found really interesting about her is she was a great comic actress. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, I, wa- I watched some clips of her, and it, there is some really funny stuff. Mm. But he wouldn't let her do those roles. He wanted her to be very uh, sophisticated mm. in but her was- roles, and so he kind of simultaneously, while trying to promote, it, killed her career mm. by not letting her do funny. But he wouldn't right. let her do romance stuff either, as well. But he supervised every aspect of her career. But yeah, to, to sort of, she was quite lonely as well because you know. There are similarities with what happens to this woman, and and she stayed in and drank too much and did jigsaw puzzles. Wow! Yep, I love a jigsaw puzzle. Though. I thought but it's that just all right. It's just very specific, though, isn't it? Yeah. If you're attacking a man, right? At least change the game she's playing. She's doing Ludo or something. But honestly, I watched this and I was like, does once you've researched Hurst and watched this movie, you're like. 
There's very little creative writing yeah. on into this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. literally just borrowing a man's life <laughs> yeah. and putting it on screen. And no matter how awful Hurst was in real life, it's really, really too much to just have written his life, changed the yeah. name and gone, here's a movie. Mm. It's so, so, and, like, cutting. And it's equally funny, the denials that they issued, because they had to do, do, do these denials. They yeah. didn't want to get sued. But, you know, anyone paying any attention, it's like, no. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, yes, let's go on to Kane with Susan. And boy, can she scream and shout. <laughs> Dorothy Cummingor is brilliant in this scene where she's just, no, spoiled my debut. <laughs> and she comes across like it's quite strange because she... I think at this point she still believes she's good because yes. she's believing in what Kane says and it's only after time goes by that she realises she's not good. And now she does come across as a spoiled brat yes. going, how dare you let this man write this terrible review? Um, what I love in this scene is he sent Leyland a $25,000 cheque and he gets it back yeah. and Leyland's torn it up. And in the envelope is the principles that Kane wrote earlier and Kane then tears them up. And it's both men have torn up the thing that the other values that they do not. Yes, that's true. So Leyland tore up the money mm. and Kane tears up the principles and they're both going, this is who I am. I'm mm-hmm. about money. And Leyland's going, mm-hmm. I'm about principles, not I about like money. Yeah. Fantastic. Good spot. I loved it. Loved it. So we're in Xanadu now. She misses NY. Wants to have fun. <laughs> Spoiled. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's weirdly watching this, you sort of go, because I think it is aspirational. We all think, I'd love a mansion. Like, just mm-hmm. there's a sentence. You're like, oh, an amazing house. But you look at it here and it's sort of like, what would you do just yeah. with, with that space? Just horrible, well, giant rooms, And you fucking hate each other. <laughs> yeah. Not nice. And, and this... True, if you, were, if you were getting on, you could play Chase. You, you could play hide and seek <laughs> for ages. Yeah. And this was not a big budget movie right? Uh, by any sense. And so there's so much clever stuff happening with visuals and sound. And just those echoes give you a sense of, oh, this is a miserable place that they echo when they talk to each other. Because mm. they're not showing the size of the house. There's a big fireplace behind them, but yeah. that's it. Yeah. Um, mm. just uh, you know, I some I feel like the decor's telling stories in this film as well. The, the different rooms you go to. The only room that feels lived in is 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 her room later. Well, it's coming up in a minute that gets trashed. I mean, it's a bit weird. There's dolls. <laughs> yeah. How old are you, Susan? <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about adults who collect dolls? Oh, it's it's up there with things I hate the most. <laughs> Men wearing white socks with black shoes. Right. So now I've had a bit of a. What, yeah, it's we, a 180, isn't it? Because I was happen. 360. Happen. Hello. So white socks and dark shoes are still makes me feel a bit violated. Yeah. But white socks now and a light coloured shoe, not such a hard red line as it was. Mm. Collecting dolls is a thing, isn't it? But like people that have got, you know, for me, like stuffed toys like that are for kids. And like, let the kids have them. It's cute and you need it. But it does say to me something. It's, it's It feels sinister when a grown-up's got them. Mm. I uh, was in Tokyo at a shop called Mandrake, which sells a lot of pop culture. You know how the the (laughs) Japanese uh, just love um, pop culture. And uh, I found in this shop an Indiana Jones action man. Right. And I bought it. Yeah. I've still got it. In the box. In the box. Worth a fortune. Worth a fortune. Original one from the 80s. Okay, sell it. No. You just want to look at it. And it looks back at me. (laughs) 
That's what I'm more interested in. And validates in. me. Uh, so, we're in the Pleasure Palace. Uh, he's, uh, she's had enough of him. Uh, mm. Susan says he's trying to buy her into giving him something he never gave her anything. So he's basically trying to buy her love and he's never shown her any, so she ain't giving it up. Yeah, yeah, and she's a, she's a, a sympathetic character, but also she's... <laughs> She's a, she's a figure of fun for most of this movie when she's on screen. Mm. And so I'm really happy here that she's a woman who has the strength to walk out on this man. Mm. And, and the toll it takes on him, he thoroughly deserves. So I'm really glad that she, ha- she goes on this journey. Yeah, he says, please, Susan, when he's finally begging, please don't go. From now on, things will be the way you want them. And she's not quite sold. And then he makes the mistake of saying, you can't do this to me. Mm. And suddenly she realises it's still all about him, his image, his public persona, what it looks like having her leave him. I think that's what it means. It's less about how he feels. I know you said maybe he does love her. I think it's more about what it looks like to him and possibly his access to the outside world. You know, he has no friends and she brings her friends into his world. She provides the entertainment and the parties, much like Marion Davis did for Hearst in real life. Yeah, Yeah, but no, I'm saying I do not think he loves her. I think he saw her as a project. Mm. Um, and that's what sets him apart from Hurst and Marion Davis because they did love each other right up until the end. No matter what happened, they were still in each other's lives, very much in love, right up to the, till his death. Yeah. So she goes. She's done. He, like you said, trashes the room. Very good scene. Orson, just do your stuff. <laughs> I think he's trashed a room before. In fact, I know for a fact he has. When a play went really badly, he walked around every floor of a hotel, kicking down the doors and terrifying the guests on every floor. Fuck that dude. And got a call the following day saying he'd done $40,000 worth of damage. And you should go to jail, you big baby. <laughs> yeah. Passionate is what I call okay. it. <laughs> you wouldn't say that if it was your hotel suite. Do you remember when I walked down the corridor here after a bad show? Kicked every door <laughs> in this building. You open. will know my name. <laughs> Citizen Zane. <laughs> Citizen Zane. Uh, it's, it's a keeper. It's a keeper. Uh, right, we're into the final hurdle now. Uh, we're back with Thompson. Uh, he goes to Xanadu to see the butler. Uh, says he'll pay him $1,000 for information on Rosebud. <laughs> the butler tells him what he knows. He goes, that's not worth that money. <laughs> terrible, terrible deal making by the butler there. Give me the money. I don't want to be judged on the quality. Ask me another question then, Dickhead. (laughs) Yeah, about anything but Rosebud. I've told you everything I know. So, uh, yeah, and uh, we are cataloguing the artefacts. Thompson holds a jigsaw puzzle and saying he's basically been playing with a jigsaw puzzle on his journey to find out who Cain was. Oh, the symbolism. (laughs) Cain was a man who got everything and lost it. Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get or he lost. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. Terrible reporter, Thompson. It can. It can tell you everything. <laughs> That's what you said at the start. <laughs> that is what you were sent to do. Your yeah. editor said, this word will explain everything. And just because you didn't find out what it was, it, it, it wouldn't explain anything. <laughs> I've, I've decided. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And in the middle of all those artefacts and crates, it is quite a powerful end. Like, it's... um. It reminds me a little, uh, not just because it's a room full of crates, of the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, with the Ark of the Covenant. It's the idea of you've spent the movie searching for this thing. This is the most important thing in the world. And then at the end, it's just 
gone. Yeah. I don't think there's irrelevant. a coincidence. No. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm saying it, I'm realising that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Uh, coincidence. Steven Spielberg, I spotted something <laughs> that you might not have thought of. <laughs> How do you respond? I bet, I bet he'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> never, no se- idea. never seen it. Citizen <laughs> what? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, like you said, goes up in smoke. All, All this wealth, all everything he's collected has just been sold mm. off or burned. Yeah, and His your life gone. is nothing. And we're done. <laughs> we are done. And uh, oh, sorry, Conair, Conair credits. And then Orson's is the last Orson Welles' last name in the cast list. Doesn't even doesn't even put himself on screen. Oh, what, a what, what a guy! What a lad! What a lad! Honourable man. <laughs> yeah. Honourable man. I don't want the credit for what this. Great boss. Mm. <laughs> So, the aftermath, I mean, we've done most of it already, so I'll keep it very brief. But basically, the aftermath was his contract was changed. Citizen Kane wasn't burned, but MGM studio head Louis Mayer did get to the studios, who also owned a lot of the first-run movie houses, so kept it out of a lot of them. Uh, They refused to screen it. Some refused to screen it for fear of Hearst's revenge on them. And uh, while the instant renown the film gave Wells, he was never able to work in Hollywood with the same freedom. You mentioned the Magnificent Ambersons, which I saw an article in The Guardian the other day. The Guardian. uh, That is not that. Is it not? (laughs) Is it not? I'm, I'm more what do you read? News of the world. <laughs> you do not. It doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, it's yes. really good. I, I know it's not his cut of the magic, uh, mm. Magnificent Ambersons, but I've, I watched it a couple of years ago. It's really good. Well, I think they're restoring his original cut. I think they found the footage recently and they're putting it back together. Or, uh, you know, or, or they're using AI, most likely. I think so, yeah. Probably AI. And, uh, yeah, in 1946, uh, in the aftermath, Wells said, I came to Hollywood saying, if they let me do a second picture, I'm lucky. They didn't, and since that time, I've been trying to get back to the position I was in when I first arrived with a contract to make the picture in my own way without interference. And he never did Although mm-hmm. he was a voice in Transformers. Mm. I don't think anyone <laughs> interfered there. He got to do what he wanted. He totally got to do what he wanted. That's why his bits make no sense. Rosebud. No, you, you're saying Megatron, get away from her. Rosebud. No, Megatron, get... Jesus, Orson. So, um, yeah, according to Gore Vidal... Yes. <laughs> I'll be doing it now. All right, here we go. This is, uh, uh, this is one, for the, one for the adults. Rosebud <laughs> was the pet name that William Randolph Hearst gave to his mistress, Marion Davis's private parts. Clitoris specifically. Clitoris, be specific. Yeah. Don't be shy. No, no, I was, I was going to do it for everyone. I was not just for the adults. Oh, all right, a clip. Um, <laughs> Do kids listen to this? Particularly kids, are you listening to our Citizen Kane episode? Hey, maybe some 10-year-olds are. It's big in the 10-year-old well, market. Look, look, just it's an anatomical part of a, of a body. Just call it kids, what it is. listen, let me tell you a little bit about how all right. the women work. The women. <laughs> the so, women. yeah, it's what you call a snatch. And, um, no, it's, it's not. not. It's, specifically, it's a very specific yeah. part. Jesus Christ, I know you've never seen it, Chris, <laughs> or found it. I'm but trying it to there. find rude words to annoy you. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, this is 
Gore Vidal's word. He apparently heard it from Charles Lederer, who's related to Marion Davis and was a frequent guest at San Simeon. I can imagine it. I've read people saying, well, what if only these two people were having sex? Why would this ever come out? But I can imagine this coming up at parties at their house. These people lived a wild life. Um, (laughs) They were all sleeping around. I'm sure it was maybe a running joke that William, uh, that that, that Mank heard while he was partying with them. Even now, even now, people go, oh, don't tell them. Don't tell them. At a party, people reveal, you know, you have a few. A few, a few glasses of bubbly. Sure. It just stuff. sounds so plausible. And it's quite nice. Like, if that is yeah. what it is, well, what a nice thing. Yeah. But also, potentially a very annoying thing for William Randolph Hearst to see when he sits down in the screen room to watch this yeah. film. Awesome Wells. This is, is the ultimate going, insult. Rosebud. Do you think it is the ultimate insult? I think it's quite an... I don't know. Like he's laughing at me. Why? Because he's embarrassed by the fact that people because would know it's that out fact. Yeah, you just kind of. But it's already out fact. there because someone. Yeah. It's all right. Not, if it was said at a party. Well, well yes. Gore Vidal's the first person to make this claim in 1989. Right. I guess. Yeah. I mean. I so suppose, is it out I, there? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in there. <laughs> you can't go in it. You 100 no. can't, can't go, go in it. it. I, 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 I haven't I, tried. I, I mean, I remember I'm a doctor, so uh, <laughs> so actually I'll tell you and, and you. <laughs> You can't, thankfully. But you, what? you absolutely shouldn't. You, I mean, you, you can. Very painful. <laughs> the number of bruised... For everyone. <laughs> the number of bruised clitori I've had to deal with uh, in my surgery. Yeah. Mm. Uh, watching this, though, a couple of years ago, uh, most recently, the sort of shocking thing this time, especially two, three years ago, was just the, the parallels with Donald Trump in terms of the unloved child who becomes the tycoon and runs for office and the Getty stuff is very much lock him up, lock her up, and then ends up moving to Florida and and can wants to be loved but can't give love like the parallels are just mad and so i was googling this and trump about 25 years ago claimed that citizen kane was his favorite film yeah. and so errol morris the great errol morris interviewed him for a project that, ne- that never came off a documentary and i will post on on our twitter um a few clips from it because it's amazing donald trump does not understand citizen kane <laughs> and he's not sh- he, they asked he asked about the ending and he's like i'm not sure rosebud means anything and he questions if it would worked if they'd used a different word. He thinks the word is what made it would resonated with people. Right. Um, he describes Citizen Kane as a great rise and a modest fall. Um, and his advice to, to Charles Kane to avoid that modest fall would be to get yourself a new woman. Oh. He's ju- he just misses the entire point of the film. Wow. I bet he had a nap halfway through. <laughs> Missed a lot of it, and I remember saying to you, to you that I'm sure it's Citizen Kane's favorite film. And I remember there was this. I found it this profile that someone did with him, where he, I think his favorite film isn't Citizen Kane; it's Bloodsport. Yeah, starring John Claude Van Damme. There is top two, and he doesn't even like. <laughs> he, he doesn't even like uh, the full Bloodsport. What he's done is he's got his son. He gets his son to forward wind through the exposition scenes <laughs> because he thinks it's better as a forty minute film. <laughs> But if he wasn't such an asshole, that would be quite charming. Yeah. I mean, like Citizen Kane, Succession. You can watch Logan oh Roy. Budget. Logan Roy in Succession. It's very much the same thing. Definitely. We are fascinated by these men, like it or not. Yeah. But uh, that is us done for the bulk of it. Shall we do the clits? The bits. Oh, I didn't, didn't want to do that. I've been thinking about it for the last five minutes. And I actually hate myself for doing it. So anyway, let's do the bits. Um, v, what is your best scene? So, I, you know, con- contra- contrary contrary to what you might think, I do like the newsreel at the beginning, even though it tells you the whole film. But the best scene is the, the Rosebud going up in smoke. Mm. Uh, yes, that's it. 
Christopher? Uh, I love that marriage table scene. I said it's the whip pans there, but yeah, I just I think the most exciting thing watching this film now for the tenth time is just all the different things you're seeing: the optic illusions, the split diopters, the rear screen projection, all this shit that he was introducing to cinema, and that's one of them. Just the whip pan and just telling telling your story through uh, visuals rather than than dialogue uh, in the most sort of mm. clever way. Yeah, I, a special mention to that scene, the breakfast uh, montage. But for me, it's that scene that I went into a little bit of detail on when he first meets Susan and you can see him reinventing himself or seeing the opportunity to reinvent himself. And that juxtaposed with where he was going <laughs> to find Rosebud. And he would have found Rosebud then had he not met her and the change in direction that his life took in that moment. So that's my favourite scene. Uh, what's your most valuable whatever? Could be anything, Chris. Could be anything. I'm going to go with Orson Welles, the actor, writer, director of this film, Citizen Kane. I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> what's the point? It's a simple one, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going with Orson Welles as well, just to jump nice. on the back of that. Shove it, Pauline Kael. His, um, <laughs> his collaboration with Mankiewicz certainly meant the script produced the best of both their work, but... Just reading around him, like, he sounds like a tyrant, but he also sounds like someone who, if he believed in you and your talent, no matter where you were in the pecking order, whether you were a makeup assistant, whether you were someone further down the the career ladder in special effects, if you could bring something, you had a talent, you had a gift that was perhaps being underused by others, he would go, I want you on board. You're yeah. my you're my boy, Blue. He'd bring you in and... Um, and that eye for talent and yeah you know that how driven he was and his ability to court sensationalism and yes it was his downfall but at the same time i just think he's a genius and the war of the worlds thing well we haven't talked about what a good performance this is as well Mm. (laughs) for for all these different ages of this man but just that first moment when he turns around in the chair and smiles you're like whoa yeah this is a really handsome man and then he starts speaking and the charisma just exudes off him yeah and and he was a right laugh as well yes of course yeah Yeah. his voice is a gift like it isn't just his his voice voice, but it is his voice oh my god he's a lot like me yeah. <laughs> God, I was just thinking that. Honestly, it was when so Chris said he's a, he's a right laugh as well, because I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a right laugh, actually. Yeah, he, was a, he was a talk show legend. Like He was properly funny on the talk shows. Yeah. yeah. Go on, Vicky. Oh, sorry, Orson Welles. Um, obviously, what was I going to say in support of that? So this is it. If he'd gone into the Hollywood system softly, softly, he's like he's got this amazing deal. He's like, okay, I'm not going to piss anyone off, right? I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go at the most powerful man in the world, and I'm not going to try and semi-destroy the Hollywood system while I'm at it. And I'll make something not Men from Mars, but something that doesn't annoy anyone. Then he maybe would have been allowed to keep doing stuff forever, but on their terms. So what he did was set fire to everything, but he then accidentally made one of the greatest films of all time and then wasn't able to do anything else. But because of that, that sort of sacrifice, you, that's why you get this product because it is a young man just going, I don't give a shit, and then just doing what they want to do. And therefore, he may, it might have hindered his career afterwards, but if he'd gone in differently, more sort of trying to placate people, you would have got a series of mediocre films forever. Yeah, you could start you could sort of slow burn your career yeah. and, and build up to greatness or you could Get kick off <laughs> with the fucking masterpiece. Many would say we did that. Sure. We started with The Net versus Hackers. God, I love that film. We followed that with Street Fighter versus Mortal Kombat. Mm, Bloody yeah. brilliant show. Then yeah. The Toughest Man in the World versus Roadhouse. <laughs> what a, a joke. <laughs> then Dark Star versus Galaxy Quest. That was stupid. And then Anaconda <laughs> versus Deep Blue Sea. Brilliant. We started Hard. very fucking strong. Yeah. Yeah. 
Dark Star versus Galaxy Quest. Did, that is not fair. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever gets you through the night, man. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think basically, I think uh, when you said earlier, Chris, Orson Welles is not a fan of this film. I think it's probably just painful for him. Yes, yeah, I think. He, yeah, he, secretly, he knows he's made a good film. Yeah, yeah. yeah no doubt. He, he has made one of the greatest films in cinema history. Uh, but you know to not work ever at that level again, to have sort of almost tasted paradise and then have that ripped away from you Mm. and to never, ever be able to do something of that level again must be heartbreaking. You just, I wouldn't want to hear the word Citizen Kane if I was Orson Welles. Yeah. Right then. So, one of the greatest films ever made. What would you change, V? So, his son dies and yet, (laughs) and yet. So, is it on purpose that we we get told his son dies in the newsreel Mm -hmm. and then we never, and and the boy gets in the car and you're like, oh, eek, here it comes, which is really good, you know, masterful tension and whatnot. And that, that we never see the impact of that child's death on the man. That's huge. So is it, is, no, he, Orson Welles is cleverer than me. So it's omission is either he didn't give a shit, so it's not in here and isn't that cold. Like, I don't get it. So I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's my change as well. So I'll, I'll just join you in this right now. I, I, I don't care whether Orson Welles is clever than this. I want to see, like, it's important for me. You are basically painting a picture of this man's life and you've told us. Everything else in that newsreel, news on the march at the start, you go into mm. in great detail and you just don't do it with that. And I think for whatever decision he's made not to include it, I'm like, that feels unfair. It's almost like your child's death is an opportunity for us to see just how human or inhuman Cain yes. really is in that moment. As your audience who've come with you on this journey, you have to show us that. It, it's a man who, at the end of his life, is grieving about losing his own childhood, yeah. who literally loses a child. <laughs> yes. And yet the film does not acknowledge it after the newsreel. And yeah. so the two, I, I've thought about this a lot. I, you know, either it's, well, no one was there to witness his reaction and we're only, we were only getting sort of secondhand accounts not buying that or is it well out this man in his life out of sight out of mind mm. i can just move on to the next thing yeah. i've already moved on to susan actually because they die i think when he's with susan they say yeah. in the newsreel uh, again i'm not buying it it's just unacceptable to not acknowledge it during the film i can't believe we're criticizing six and kane but the fact that we all three of us have the same issue with it it's frankly bizarre and mm. I, I that's all i can think of to justify it, and i don't think either of them hold water mm. Well, so I've got a change. Not... I've got a change. Okay. Oh, so so say he did, say he got the news and there was no one around to see. I think you need to have a scene. I was thinking about what what scene would I do. Uh, the first one I thought of, which I think is the inferior one, is is Susan asks him about the crash at a later date, and he says never utter their names again, just so that we know that there's something going on in his head. But I think maybe a better scene, which would would actually add, because I did start questioning this in my head, is that the paper starts investigating the crash, suspecting foul play. Because why wouldn't that happen to people in his world? And then he storms into the newsroom and and shuts them down and loses his mind over that. Because... Yeah, I mean, when when you're you're a, a figure like this in the world... Why would he shut them down? Because he, well, we don't know. That's right. the thing. We don't know. Again, it, it would add to the mystery. Okay. But because clearly this is not something he thinks about much mm. later in his life. But we need a moment where he acknowledges it. And I think you, those are two ways of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, because he sort of seems to have gone on a, a slightly, there's a jump in his downward spiral towards the end. And we cut forward to Xanadu at the very end. And you sort of go, is that the child's death? But without even any acknowledgement of it, you don't know whether this is a result of that or it's literally nothing to do with that and he would have been here anyway. Yeah, interesting one. Hey, if you've got a theory, hit us up on Twitter at ClashPod. 
And I believe at one hour, 27 minutes or thereabouts, that is us done with Citizen Kane. We're not doing a Clash queue, and we are not doing a quiz. Great. Great. So, let's look ahead to next week. Obviously, we're back on Thursday with the Aviator, but looking ahead to next week, who has the clue? I'm going to say one. Great. It's quite vague. I, I think you'll need to know what movies. We're I doing. think you'll need to hit our, our Twitter um, for a further clue. But uh, over the next two weeks, we will be doing a quadrilogy. <gasps> oh, I know what it is. Yep, I remember. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we just we literally discussed this last week. We really did. <laughs> it's not on the Google Doc. I think it is. It might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much is. So I checked the day after. So I mean, I'm just that. I was that eager to <laughs> okay. remind myself, but it wasn't there then. So right. So yeah. Okay. Great. I know what we're doing. Great. We're doing a quadrilogy over the next fortnight on Clash of the Titles, and that is it for this episode. We will be back on Thursday talking the Aviator and seeing whether it stands a chance against the cinematic behemoth that was Citizen. Kane. Until then, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod, and check out our YouTube channel as well. Subscribe to Clash of the Titles. Thank you very much. Have a lovely rest of your week. Clash of the Titles is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.